roughly uh, 235 people receiving a collective amount of $130 million. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Before we get into this interview, I just wanted to say uh, apologies for the change in sound quality halfway through this. Uh, Technical difficulties with Ray's mic led to us having to revert to our backup recording. Uh, The content is still very interesting though, so I would urge you to bear with it and listen till the end. So, whilst the last couple of months have been COVID crazy... The work of the before times carries on, including a topic that the BMJ is perennially interested in, industry funding of medics. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and to talk about some new research that's just been published in the BMJ, I'm joined by friend of the pod, Ray Moynihan, a researcher at Bond University. Hi Ray, welcome back to the podcast. Hello Duncan, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to hear from you again. So um, the work that you've been doing um, around conflicts of interest um, carries on and you've just published this new research with us uh, looking at financial ties between some healthcare association leaders and industry in the US. Um, now you've chosen the US because they have the Sunshine Act which publishes the data needed for that kind of research. Um, but more broadly than that, why have you chosen to look at the, the heads of these healthcare associations? Um, because they're often at one remove from, for example, guideline makers who we've, uh, we've been worrying about um, in the past. Mm. Well, well, we've looked at these um, big, powerful medical associations, professional medical associations, we call them, essentially very powerful uh, doctors groups run by doc- doctors for doctors. But also they um, they do a lot of research, some of them. They run a lot of the medical education in the US uh, and they also uh, auspice guidelines and very importantly, they, they also have a big impact on disease definitions, these organizations. So they're very, very powerful. And so um, while there's a lot of research out there on conflicts of interest, we found that there really wasn't much at all that had looked at, well, what are the ties between the leaders of these groups and the drug companies and the device makers? And, and as you mentioned, the U.S. has this extraordinary transparency regime where uh, the open payments database uh, reports on all of the the money flows to these uh, to doctors in America, and so we looked. We uh, we identified ten of the most influential groups across ten of the big disease categories, and then we simply identified who the leaders were over the last few years, and then looked at how many of them had ties uh, to which companies. And why ten organisations? We thought that would give us a, a good broad coverage, and and those the the ten actually arose from some data about the ten most costly disease areas in the U.S. So they're they're the areas that 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 your listeners will obviously be familiar with: heart disease, uh, cancer, mental health, uh, injuries, um, you know, osteoarthritis, and so on, um, and uh, hypertension. 
and these are the big the, these you know according to data these are the big uh, most costly disease areas and we thought cover and then and then we identified well who is the which is the doctors group that represents this area and uh, we thought that would give us a good coverage uh, and also a, a good number of leaders to investigate and and it did it, it uh, produced about 330 um, doctors who lead these organizations doctors and others and so it gave us a good sample to look at and you excluded from that the big associations with a sort of very public facing remit ones which do lots of education for the public um why why was that why did you focus on the, the sort of doctor for doctor association well we 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 did we did explicitly exclude organizations like for example the american diabetes association because in our in the preliminary research for this we realized that those groups weren't run primarily by doctors for doctors they were much more large civil society organizations um, and as such, most of their leaders weren't were not doctors, and so there was there was no actual way of tracking down any financial relationships between their leadership and the uh, and and industry, uh, because the open payment system is only for doctors. It doesn't have anything else in it. It just has medical doctors and doctors of osteopathy. So um, that was one of the reasons to focus in. But certainly, it would be it would be very interesting to look at some of those other broader civil society groups too. Yeah, so it's pragmatic based on on the data available, but uh, that's it. Philosophically, still interesting. Um, so, Ray, you've looked at these these ten organisations. Can you give us a, a picture of what you found? Well, I mean, there's some good news and some bad news, Duncan, and. And perhaps the, the, the you know, and, and both of them were surprising, I guess. We expected, of course, to find some level of, of money flow between the drug and device companies and these influential medical leaders. We never expected to find the amount we found. Over, we looked at three years of leadership. We looked at uh, their, their ties in the four years before they became leaders and the year after they were leaders. And we found um, essentially a total amount of $130 million US flowing to these uh, roughly roughly 235 of those leaders were medical doctors. So roughly uh, 235 people receiving a collective amount of $130 million. Most of that, much of that was for research payments. Um, but a large amount was also for so-called general payments, which includes hospitality, royalty payments, consultancy, speaking fees. So this is an is, is enormous amount of money, extremely extensive. Um, th- so that was, if you like, the bad news. There's still a huge level of, of entanglement here that, that really needs to be addressed. The good news was, from our point of view, that, that there is enormous variation that we didn't expect to find, and I think people will find quite surprising if they look at our paper. Some of these doctors' groups were, were taking enormous amounts of money, tens of millions of dollars, the leaders of the doctors' groups. Um, and, and, you know, one, one of the groups, um, the, the median amount that their, their leaders were getting was something like half a million dollars. 
whereas other groups the median amount was two hundred dollars over that over that time period so you had the the leaders of the american psychiatric association um, with a median uh, a payment level of about two hundred dollars over all those all those years uh, the american um, physicians college of physicians similarly very very small amounts so so in other words some of the leadership um, still in, in, in a deep entanglement with industry, whereas other, uh, other doctors' groups are, are, are developing much more distance from industry. That was, uh, there, I suppose, two of the most surprising uh, findings. Mm. And I suppose, you know, if you mention there, um, say, cardiology and rheumatology, there's a lot of research yep. that goes on in, in those fields. Um, with industry, lots of kind of uh, drugs being developed. So um, that's it. When you were able to disentangle the the research investment from, you know, those general payments you you were looking at, did the did the same patterns hold? The, look, the, the the you know we've got some lo- lovely figures in the BMJ paper if people want to have a look at this, but that that show both the extraordinary amount of uh, of money flowing, but also the variation, and and so you've got um, as you rightly say, the cardiologists were getting uh, I think they got something the leadership there received something more than twenty million dollars over that time frame um, uh, for research. The um, the uh, cancer specialist, the leadership there, more than fifty million dollars. Um, whereas when it came to the general payments, the royalties and the the speaking fees and that kind of thing, um, it was actually the the North American Spine Society that was the largest there, with their leadership um, accepting close to ten million dollars in that time. Um, and and again, so the, the leading organisations there were the, the sort of surgical ones. Um, so you know, whereas you know there were still there were still flows of money, consultancies, and someone. I mean, if you look at some of the individuals involved, you you really do become quite shocked when you see the the the, the huge amounts being paid to some of these leaders, just with leaving aside research payments just large consultancies to individual companies, large amounts of speaking fees and, and so on. And, and it, you know, of course it raises this question about how can one make independent decisions? How, how can that leadership, um, you know, purport to have an independence from industry when there's such a closeness between some of their leaders and industry? Mm. Um, and, of course, the argument on the other side of this is that well, of course, these leaders are going to have ties with industry because industry will choose to work with the the, the best and brightest within each specialty. Um, but you know, for many of us, uh, many people feel that that argument just no longer holds water. There are plenty of extremely bright um, and extremely successful uh, cardiologists and cancer specialists and and spine specialists and orthopods. Um, you know who 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 do not have those sort of ties with industry, who could be running those organisations. So, um, and as you know, the backdrop to this, we may talk about it in a moment, is the the, the growing kind of push for much more independence between these groups um, and industry generally. Uh, the BMJ is running a campaign on that at the moment. Mm. Um, 
but but some very interesting findings in yeah, there. Yeah, we will get to that in a second. Um, but I had one more question about about your data first. You mentioned there you had some um, longitudinal data um, about this, and I suppose I'm wondering is if it's a, a chicken or the egg, I suppose. Is it something to do with the way that these associations... Um, choose who to elect, you know, based on the amount of research they're done or, you know, the innovation that they're involved with? Um, or do, does industry target these these leaders um, when they're ascendant, knowing that they are going to be in a position then to, to influence the, the profession? profession? Great question, Duncan. I mean, I think that's a very good question, and I think it's a bit of both. But I think you know, let's be frank here, and I think many of the the, the, the doctors, uh, researchers listening to this podcast will will realise that that industry's marketing strategy is to target promising people from very early on in their careers, and and the sad reality is that many uh, that many careers are built on industry money, and so. I mean, and, and the, the problem here is not the, the, the role of industry. Of course, uh, industry products are vital and particularly vital in this moment. This is not about uh, whether or not the products that come out of industry are, uh, are valuable. Of course, they're valuable. This is about the evidence showing the terrible distortion of medical research, medical education, clinical practice that happens when there's a an overly cozy relationship and and so we know that industry targets uh, you know promising uh, doctors from very early on from 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 medical school and and that and that industry money industry support for research industry support to travel uh, industry support to 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 be you know educating your colleagues helps people's careers enormously so it's you know it's very hard to work out what what's who's the chicken and who's the egg in this situation. Mm. So Ray, you found these conflicts of interest at, in in this leadership group, but do we know if this is flowing into affecting you know any of the outputs of these associations, the guidelines or or disease definitions, which um which a lot of these are involved in. Well, look, that, that's, a, that's a critical question, and, it, and it's one of the reasons we looked at these powerful U.S. Um, doctors groups is because they, they do release guidelines that have huge impacts, but also they do release, uh, they do actually help define uh, diseases. They help define who's sick and who's not, um, and that influence can be global. Um, and, of course, the, the problem of widening disease definitions is one of the drivers of this problem of overdiagnosis, of this problem of too many people being diagnosed and too many people being treated unnecessarily. So these groups are very, very important in that regard. One small secondary outcome from this study was 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 related to the guidelines. We looked at some of the popular guidelines from these um, 10 groups and we looked for whether or not the guidelines were mentioning overuse or overdiagnosis. And the sample size from the guidelines was just too small to draw any real conclusions. But we did find that there was very, very rare mention 
of these problems that the guidelines and I, I remember reading all of them as part of this <laughs> you know a lot of them are still very kind of promotional in tone they're about doing more they're about prescribing more they're about prescribing the newest and the latest um, and it's rare you know that's not exclusively the case but it's a general impression um, and in rare cases the guidelines are making you know, brief mentions of the problems of of too much medicine and so on, and and again we that we didn't have the statistical power to to draw any conclusions about a relationship between whether or not the organisation took money um, or didn't take money and what impact that had on their guidelines, but but this is certainly an area for further study, um, and you know, and to think that at a time when there is just growing um, sort of global recognition of the problem of too much medicine. I mean, health systems everywhere are facing this challenge. This is no longer a fringe concern. This is like a mainstream concern all over the world, leaving aside COVID, which of course has rightly taken all of our attention. But once COVID passes, this problem of, of too much medicine will remain front and centre for health systems everywhere. Um, and that includes both overuse of treatments, but also overuse of diagnoses, overdiagnosis. And to have, at a time when we're trying to confront that problem, to have the leadership of, of some of these huge medical groups accepting money from companies that directly profit from that medical excess is simply absurd. Yeah, definitely. Now, at the beginning, we said um, that this is a U.S. cohort, but there's nothing to suggest that they're in any way an outlier here. Uh, and in a way, around the rest of the world, it's it's kind of worse because these links can um, potentially go unexamined. Um, so what do you think this tells us about, uh, you know, the need for declaring conflicts of interest uh, publicly elsewhere? Well, well, I think I think these I think these results very powerfully argue for you know the transparency regime that the U.S. have to be rolled out globally. I mean, it is it is odd to be thinking of the U.S. as a as a global benchmark, particularly at this time in our lives. But um, but I think in terms of sunshine, in terms of transparency, the U.S. In a, in a rare sort of bipartisan act about 10 years ago brought in this, this so-called Sunshine Act that produced this extraordinary transparency around money flows from industry to doctors. Um, there's still problems with it. It should be widened so that we can see how much patient groups are getting and so mm. we can see how much other groups are getting from industry. But nevertheless, it is a benchmark. Um, and without it, we could simply, we could not do this research. Researchers can't do this level of detailed research in other places. Some countries are moving towards this. I know there's a big push within the UK at the moment to move towards some sort of um, mandatory uh, system where these things are out on the table. But because otherwise, these, these, these relationships kind of fester in the darkness, and we have no idea... Um, what sort of money which particular doctors, which specialists, which medical leaders are taking. We don't know uh, wh wh who's taking what. Um, and, I, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's imperative. It's a basic fundamental 
first step in this discussion to have that level of transparency. So, and certainly in Australia, you know, where I'm based, where we did this research from, I should say with a great team involving Lisa Barrow and, uh, and, and a number of colleagues, in, including close colleague at Bond, um, uh, Loe Albacone, you know, this, it, it shows up the, the weakness in the Australian system. We could not have done this research in Australia. We have a, a self-regulatory system in Australia. Um, and I think these sort of government-run mandatory transparency regimes in healthcare are utterly vital and, and a first step to really try and clean up uh, this, um, the, the, the problems with industry uh, influence distorting medical science. Great. Well, um, Ray, thank you very much for talking to us on the podcast today. I'm sure we will um, be hearing from you again in the future about this because, as you say, it's an issue that's, that's not going away. If you uh, enjoyed this, then um, you might want to have a listen to some of the conversations Ray has been having with um, less conflicted industry leaders uh, in his uh, podcast we've co-published in our BMJ feed so that's all available uh, for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from Ray, thanks for taking some time to talk to us again today Thanks so much Duncan, talk to you again So that's it for this non-Covid episode, we'll be back on the virus later in the week with talk evidence but this won't be the last bit of non-covid content we do so keep an ear out for that if covid fatigue is setting in until next time i'm duncan jarvis thanks for listening <laughs>